In the late 1990s, the state of Illinois made a big investment in the growing field of genomics, using money from a settlement with tobacco companies. That led to the creation of the Carl Woese Institute for Genomic Biology, which pulled together researchers from all over campus to use genomics, or the study of genetic material, to support research in a dozen areas. Its research teams have developed new imaging techniques to find genetic markers for cancer earlier, modified plants to produce more protein for a hungry world, and discovered that kidney stones host living microbes, opening up a whole new line of research. In today's podcast, IGB Director Gene Robinson talks about that research and his own work on a global project to catalog the genomes for every species on Earth. He also weighs in on the ethical challenges that come with these advances, including the controversial Chinese scientists who helped produce the world's first genomic-edited babies. We'll be back after this. Hey, Jim Rosso, News Gazette Media Vice President, reminding you that we have a ton of podcasts available at newsgazette.com every day of the week, from Dave Gentry's morning show to Scott Beatty's News Hour to Brian Barnhart's Penny for Your Thoughts. Head to our website, newsgazette.com, and search for podcasts. Welcome back to Campus Conversation. I'm Julie Wirth, and my guest today is Gene Robinson, director of the Carl Woese Institute for Genomic Biology at the University of Illinois. He is also the Swanland Chair of Entomology and Neuroscience and an expert on bees, using the honeybee to study how genes influence social behavior. Gene, thanks for being here today. Well, thank you very much for having me. Delighted. I wanted to talk today about some of the latest developments at IGB and how it came about and some of the larger issues in the field of genomics, but I feel like we should start maybe with a primer for our audience about what genomics is and um, sort of the impact it's had on scientific discovery over the last 10 or 15 years. Sure. Uh, everyone's heard of genes. Uh, we have genes, plants have genes, animals have genes, microbes have genes. The genes reside on a piece of DNA and uh, every cell in our body has two copies of this piece of DNA. In our cells, they're, believe it or not, six feet long, and they contain all of our genetic material. They contain the genes, and they contain pieces of DNA uh, that regulate the genes, that tell the genes what to do. We refer to the entire assemblage of this material, the genes, and the pieces of DNA that regulate the, the genes as the genome. And you, as biologists or entomologists, study, map the structure of, ge of the genome, right, to kind of, and apply it to all sorts of fields of science. And, and the Institute for Genomic Biology um, was created in the early 2000s, correct? What, what year was it yeah, again? Yeah, so we are 12 years old. 12 years old. Yep, we were started with tobacco settlement money from the Illinois legislature, a special allocation in the late 1990s. Um, some visionary campus administrators, faculty members, and, uh, and uh, board of trustees members, and uh, members of the legislature got together to see that there was this new science that was just uh, at that time coming online and uh, made an investment in the University of Illinois so that we could get in early. And as a result of our excellence on campus in these areas, and as a result of getting in early, we've now become um, one of the top genomics institutes in the world. I remember reading that you basically stayed here because this institute was created, right? Well, that was a strong part of it, for <laughs> sure. There were, there were many things uh, to keep me here, um, but the promise of the IGB was uh, certainly one of them. It was created to kind of pull together life sciences research in this area, right, from all different fields across campus, both to 
support that research and also promote economic development in this area, you know, so that these discoveries could lead to benefits for the state, right? Yes, exactly. We were founded with a twofold mission um, to uh, to promote excellence in scientific research and uh, promote bioeconomic development for the state, uh, the region, and indeed the uh, country. And we uh, play close attention to both of those goals. So there are six research areas, right, themes in IGB, or is it more than that now? We have more now. So we have a very dynamic portfolio. We have 12 different thematic research groups or themes. Each of those are composed of uh, faculty from many different departments and many different colleges. We have faculty from over 35 different departments and six different colleges. So we have... uh, developed and embraced an extreme form of team science um, where the groups, uh, the only individuals that are in the IGB are part of a team or a theme. There are no individual scientists in the IGB. Is that unique? I know that's, you know, interdisciplinary research is a very strong theme here at Illinois, but is IGB unique in the country that way or have other people copied this model? There are different versions. There's probably no two institutes that are exactly the same. Um, they vary a little bit in their structure, depending on the university that they're based in and, and other uh, elements. Um, we are among the more extreme versions of the team science. Most places still retain the individual PI, principal investigator laboratory, as the unit of organization, whereas in our case, um, it's the the team. We have only for all the individuals, we are a community of about 700 faculty, postdocs, graduate students, undergraduates, um, and for that uh, group, there are only seven large labs that uh, that are, are homes to one, each of those labs homes to one or more of our themes. Okay. And your themes cover everything from uh, cancer therapies to better crops to use for fuel, I think uh, food security, energy, health, technology, environmental conservation. Can you talk about sort of the breadth of the research? Yeah. So we have them in, in basically four buckets. We have themes that are devoted to issues related to health, issues related to technology development and issues related to the environment. And the environment can include food, as you said, uh, energy, and other considerations. And then the fourth area, fundamental research. So those are the four buckets. And each theme may be involved in, in activities in one or more of those buckets. And, and you have everybody from chemists to agricultural scientists to biologists, right, involved in any one of these, right? Yeah, so that's our secret sauce. Um, (laughs) And that's how we draw upon the strong traditions and culture of collaboration at this university um, to be able to build these highly functional and very, very diverse uh, themes. Can you give us a couple of examples, um, either recent ones or, or, you know, major discoveries that have grown out of this approach? Sure, uh, I can talk about a couple of uh, relatively recent ones. So there's one that deals with kidney stones, which sounds like a medical discovery, but the uh, discoveries were made in the realm of microbiology and geology. So we're talking medicine, geology, and microbiology. All of this is encompassed in the biocomplexity theme, which is headed by Professor Nigel Goldenfeld in the physics department. 
And uh, the principal driver of this research is Professor Bruce Falk, who's a geologist. It also involved Jessica Saw, who is an MD-PhD. Uh, she's getting her PhD at the University of Illinois. She's also getting her MD in the, uh, Mayo, at the Mayo Clinic. Um, we have very strong relations. The university and the Mayo Clinic have very strong relations. Wow. And the other principal in this research is Miyandi Sirigaguv, who is a member of the IGB staff who, runs, uh, who co-runs our coal microscope facility. So it took me 30 seconds or so just to name <laughs> the diverse players right. that are in this research. Um, now I can tell you a little bit about it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, Professor Falk saw images of kidney stones, microscopic images of kidney stones, and he commented to anyone who would listen around him, boy, that looks a lot like the Yellowstone travertine rock that I've spent my career studying. And um, he then went on to say that if that's correct, if that similarity is not just superficial similarity, that would mean that there's microbes in those kidney stones because he discovered together with colleagues uh, a variety of microbes that basically build the travertine rock at the Yellowstone Pet National Park. So um, if that's the case, that would involve a radical reformulation of our understanding of kidney stones yeah. because they had previously been thought to be sterile, sterile environments without microbes. So uh, a collaboration was started. He got a box full of kidney stones <laughs> shipped to him. Um, at the IGB, we have a special laboratory for ancient DNA. Um, so it's highly sterile, basically a, a super clean room. And um, preparations were made, uh, material was extracted, and the question was asked, are there any microbes in, this, uh, in these kidney stones? And the answer is yes. So they published a paper on this, and this is seeding some exciting new collaborations. So it really brought together wow. um, disparate kinds of perspectives, um, and, and that's what we aim to do at the IGB. So that kind of like, hey, I just noticed this, you know, maybe we could work together on it type. That's yeah. the approach, yeah. right? That's right. Uh, another one, um, the, some recent results in the, in the food area comes from our genomic ecology and global change theme. It's headed by Professor Don Ort, who's a member of the plant biology and the crop sciences uh, departments. And um, what this research showed was that you can turn plants into factories and get them to produce high value and very important uh, chemicals, in this case high value proteins, um, by modifying the plants in very specific ways. Uh, the research was spearheaded by a, one of our IGB fellows, Justin McGrath. Um, it's gotten a lot of publicity. Justin did a great job um, on an NPR piece very recently. And um, it's a very exciting approach to how to use plants um, more effectively to feed us in a sustainable uh, way and produce high-value products. This is exactly the idea that animates uh, a large center that's at the university that's co-run by the IGB and the Institute of Sustainability, Energy, and the Environment, which is directed by Professor Evan DeLucia from the School of Integrative Biology in the Plant Biology Department, this idea of plants as factories. 
uh, we together teamed up and uh, were able to successfully compete for a $115 million DOE grant. Um, that was covered by the News Gazette yep. and um, very exciting um, center that again draws from faculty across campus, um, many faculty in the IGB, in IC, and in the College of ACES uh, and other uh, domains on campus to really elaborate uh, this concept of plants as factories. To help feed a starving population, right? Exactly. Or hungry, hungry world. So basically two interdisciplinary institutes coming together with other units to uh, tackle a specific problem, that's right? That's right, yeah. And so that's, uh, that's the Illinois way. So we build these, this strong infrastructure, and then we can leverage that um, not just to be able to work as an individual institute, but to be able to be work together um, to be able to achieve even bigger things. A lot of times, I think in the public, we hear a lot about genes and gene editing in terms of medicine. And <clears throat> I noticed one of the uh, research areas at IGP involves cancer research, and in particularly, there was a an idea of a liquid biopsy. Do you know much about that research? Um, where they, it sounds like a blood test that can tell you how either how a chemotherapy drug is working or if you have cancer in the first place. Can, can you tell us more about that? Yeah. So um, this relates to research um, that's uh, that's being done in one of our themes, the omics nanotechnology for precision medicine in cancer theme. It's a partnership with the College of Engineering, specifically the Holniak uh, Nanotechnology, Micro Nanotechnology Laboratory. It's headed by Professor Bruce Cunningham, who's also the director of the Holniak Laboratory, uh, who's in the department of ECE, Electrical and Computer Engineering. And uh, they have developed some really sensitive new uh, imaging techniques to be able to look for very, very small numbers of nucleic acid molecules. That's the technical term for DNA or RNA. And the more sensitive the method is, the fewer molecules that you need to find and that you're able to find, and then the earlier you can detect cancer. So they have been collaborating with some leading medical institutions uh, in the country um, to use these new imaging methods uh, to, re -able, to be able to make liquid biopsies much more sensitive and therefore much more effective. Because of course in cancer, the earlier you detect it, the better it is. And again, um, going back to the, to the earlier point about the partnership, um, this, is, this kind of work is also very much a part of the new cancer center at the University of Illinois. We're mm -hmm. very proud to partner, be partnering with them um, as they lead the efforts to really achieve higher levels of recognition for all the great cancer work that's done on the, on the campus. And so we at the IGB are playing a role in that larger effort. How do you manage all of that? This may get too administrative, but I was wondering about the Cancer Center and, and your connections. You have a lot of connections to other institutes across campus. How do researchers know where their work should reside, or does it matter? Like, who keeps track of all this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, you know, it is what we call a good problem. Um, uh, it, the idea that there are so many units that are reaching out and, and working with each other and trying to build stronger efforts. Uh, you know, the key really is communication. 
and and the campus fosters that kind of communication. So, for example, um, the Beckman Institute, uh, IC, IGB, the Cancer Center, NCSA, uh, those are part of an ecosystem of institutes. And I didn't mention all of them because I don't know how much airtime you're going to allow me to have. <laughs> you have a um, lot. So to my colleagues, please, apo I apologize. <laughs> but those are part of an ecosystem of institutes that are run by the Vice Chancellor for Research, Susan Martinez, and she encourages us to be interacting and working together um, and finding, uh, creating those opportunities, and then and then the faculty can find the places that, that fit best for them. And creating these institutes gives it a profile and helps get research grants. I know with the Cancer Center, to be designated, that means something in the yeah. world of research, yeah. right? Yeah, that's so right. Raises that's your profile. Exactly. Okay. Um, I know there are a lot of ethical issues involved with the whole area of genomics and you know, manipulating or editing genes, as they say. Um, we we saw the story earlier this year about the scientist in China who announced that he had produced the first gene-edited babies. I think he was trying to edit out a gene that has something to do with HIV because the, either the mother or the father was HIV positive. And I know it created this big uproar. Um, and now there's a Russian scientist, I think, who says he wants to try to do the same or a similar thing. What? Why? Why was there an uproar? What, you know, obviously. You know, it sounds a little science fiction-y, but, you know, why did the community react that way, and, and what, did, what was your reaction to that? Yeah, so the news broke of the Chinese scientists uh, the night before we were hosting one of our judicial training programs. We have a series of training programs for professionals, um, our G4 program, genomics for judges, genomics for district attorneys, genomics for physicians. We even had a genomics for reporters uh, <laughs> session um, just a couple of months ago. So we had one of our judicial training sessions, genomics for judges, um, and uh, the news broke. We happened to be having as our keynote speaker, uh, Professor Henry Greeley from Stanford University, um, who's one of the leading ethicists, um, uh, bioethicists in the country. Um, and he told us that when we, when we picked him up at the airport and he turned his, ba his phone back on, that the news had broke while he was flying. He had about 100 messages um, <laughs> about this. He scrapped his keynote lecture and uh, prepared uh, in, the in the hotel room a new lecture to, to tell the judges all about this. So wow. we heard about it just at the right time. And, um, you know, the judges, as if we needed, we didn't need at all any inducement to get them to pay attention because they wanted to be there. <laughs> They're all over this, how important this is to society, to our legal system, and so forth. But it was an amazing way to start uh, that workshop. And so it really did dominate the conversation, both the scientists who we brought in, uh, our faculty from across campus, various departments and colleges to speak as experts, and, um, and all of the judges, because it really, um, it, it hit a nerve. And, um, you know, some of the issues had to do with the fact that as the leading scientists in this area um, have said, it's still too early. We really don't know enough about the activity of these genome-edited tools to be able to apply them with certainty to humans. And in particular, um, one key issue is so-called off-target effects. So these tools are very, very precise in where they are editing the genome, and the metaphor of editing is really a, a pretty good one um, because of the uh, precision that's getting better and better. They can target specific sites, but um, it's not 100% worked out, and there are off-target effects. 
and so that's, uh, that's one technical concern. Uh, a more fundamental biological concern is that each gene does many different things. And we don't know all the things that particular genes do. And so we have to work very, very carefully with uh, laboratory models, uh, various species, to be able to understand all the different effects that a single gene has, all the different ways that it interacts with other genes. Because no gene works alone. Genes work in networks. And networks are hard to understand. Networks are hard to predict. And so um, one has to have a lot of that information. And uh, all the experts agree that it's too early. Some have called for a moratorium. Some have called for self-restraint. Um, but everyone agrees uh, that um, we really don't know enough to be trying this with humans. Will it just take more time to do? How will you know, I suppose, over time? People worry about genetically modified organisms already. You know, what, is there a plan for how this should proceed? Or like you said, perhaps just prohibiting it completely with humans? Or There are discussions that are underway. The National Academies are, are leading discussions. Other leading agencies uh, and organizations are, are, are having discussions to decide what kind of uh, a path we need to follow, whether there'll be um, regulations or whether there will be um, sort of more of a self, uh, self-policing and, how, and what the steps need to be. But um, clearly, experimental work involving microbes, involving plants, involving cells in culture, and involving animals of all kinds need to happen to be able to better understand uh, all of these new tools, how to use them really, really responsibly. I was surprised to hear that because I didn't think it was something that was scientifically accepted. And, you know, it's an international world. And, you know, is there an agency that controls all of this, or will it have to be done in conjunction with governments and in terms of regulations or whatever? There's no single agency, so it will have to be uh, a consortium that, that comes together. There's strong international uh, agreement uh, on this by, 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 most part, by most parties, and so um, I'm confident that, there, that, will be, that will be possible. Do you have people at IGB who study these issues? Are there humanists who work with you on ethical research in this area, or is that a different realm? No, we do. We do engage with uh, humanists, with social scientists. Um, uh, In some cases, it has to do with research in the Institute, and in other cases, when we have, uh, uh, when we host one of our training courses for professionals, we will always uh, seek out individuals with that kind of expertise to engage with clinicians, to engage with judges, and, and so forth. So it is a really important part of Genomics and genomics actually has, uh, as a field, has a very strong history of of leading the way in dealing with this. So when the very first hu- project in genomics was approved, which was the sequencing of the first human genome, um, right away there was a uh, division created for the ethical, legal, and social implications, the so-called LC board, oh. that was dealing with all of these uh, issues right from the get-go help frame um, the way that the Human Genome Project was uh, developed and I think set set the tone for um, what we need to continue to do. The new technological developments are are just amazing in their potential and um, many already are being harnessed um, to, going back to an earlier topic, to help feed the world. 
um, to be able to use genome-modified organisms, plants, in a very effective way to help feed the world there. We've made a lot of progress. There's a lot uh, going on there. We have to apply the same kinds of approaches and, of course, even more safeguards uh, when we're talking about humans. Yeah, and there are gene therapies already, right, for yep. some diseases and exactly. that kind of thing. But this was sort of another, obviously, another step. Mm -hmm. um, and I think things happen so quickly now, you know, in, in tech as well, without people sometimes thinking of the ramifications. You led the effort to get the honeybee approved for sequencing, right? Um, and now you're involved in a project to sequence all living organisms on Earth, essentially, right? This, it's this, is it a global project, right? Yes. And so what's the status of that? And tell us a little more about that. Sure. So it's the Earth Biogenome Project. Earth Biogenome. And um, I'm co-leading this with two uh, colleagues and friends, Professor Harris Lewin, uh, who formerly was a faculty member here at the University of Illinois and uh, then left to become the vice chancellor for research at the University of California, Davis, and a distinguished scientist at the Smithsonian Institution, uh, Professor John Cress, Dr. John Cress. Uh, so we have been working on this for about three years, and it, the project's gaining a lot of momentum. Uh, the project calls for the sequencing of all of the species of life on the planet, plants, animals, and a subset of the microbes that are called the eukaryotes. Um, there are other projects dealing with the other microbes, and so we're we're looking at uh, at this. That's that's big enough. Yeah, I was going to uh, say that's, that's a big lot. enough. Yes, <laughs> and so um, uh, there are several projects that have uh, gotten underway as a result of this uh, new initiative. Uh, the biggest one is the Darwin Project in the UK. Um, the, well, the Wellcome Trust, the, a leading philanthropy in the UK, has agreed to fund the sequencing of the genomes of all the species in the UK. And an entirely new program has been set up at the Sanger Center in London with supporting projects in other locations around the, uh, around the UK. So we're very excited about that project. And there are others that are underway in China, in the US, um, and, and elsewhere. The, the basic idea is, um, so we mentioned the human genome before, um, the first human genome cost uh, $4.5 billion to wow. sequence. We estimate that we can sequence all 2 million of the plants, animals, and eukaryotic uh, species for less than that, for $4 billion. The idea is that the technology has advanced so much in genome sequencing and in computing that we can do this, that we really can do this, and we can provide essentially a new library, a library of the blueprints of life to provide the basis to extract knowledge for the discovery of new medicines, for the discovery of new foods, to understand better how organisms cope with changes in climate, to understand the evolution of life on this planet, uh, this is the repository of knowledge that exists and that we can now access through our technologies to then be able to be put to these amazing uses. So big data and the advances there have helped quite a bit, right, yes. in, in this effort? Yes. So just out of curiosity, how many species are there in the UK? <laughs> uh, the estimated uh, 66,000 known species. 66,000. I guess that's less than I actually thought. And worldwide, do you know? So it's uh, the numbers vary a little bit, but about 2 million 
described species of plants, animals, and eukaryotic microbes. Now, it is thought that there may be as many as another 8 million undescribed species. But we decided that we will declare victory when we get the 2 million done, <laughs> and we'll leave the 8 million to someone else. No, just kidding. Um, we actually have plans to uh, sequence, to collect material in hotspots, biodiversity hotspots around the world, uh, to be able to help discover new species as well. Hotspots being endangered spots? Uh, areas where there's a lot of biodiversity. Okay. So this is a technique called metagenomics, where you basically collect and sequence and then ask questions. Um, so it's an inversion of the traditional biology paradigm where you form your question and then you go out and do something. This is sequence first, ask questions later. And its roots actually are at the University of Illinois with Carl Woese, our namesake, who really developed the science that enabled people to develop this metagenomics approach. So we're proud to be able to use that um, that legacy um, and apply it to this uh, Earth Biogenome Project. This yeah, also project. discovered a new form of life, right? That's right, that's right. <laughs> no small thing. No small things, and um, that's why we're so proud to have our institute named after him. As you said, this has a lot of applications. Uh, is there some race to do this, too, before the effects of climate change or development, you know, eliminate some species before you can sequence them? Is that part of the thinking or just it's time to do it? it? Well, both. There is an urgency because we are losing species daily. Um, we are losing species um, to, due to a variety of factors. And so we really want to be able to, uh, to preserve what we have, to be able to record what we have, to record that knowledge. Each species that exists is an incredibly successful experiment in evolution. And uh, its genomes hold many of the secrets of the success of that experiment in evolution. And uh, as we develop the sequencing abilities and then the bioinformatics to extract that knowledge, that then allows us to be able to um, use that for so many good purposes. When you were talking before about the seminars that you hold for judges and reporters and, and other people. Um, it's becoming something that we all need to be familiar with, especially legally. Um, and you recently set up a new center to kind of help promote some of your public outreach, right? And even commercialize some of the technology that comes out of IGB. Tell us a little bit about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we are really delighted um, to be able to have launched the Catherine and Don Kleinman Center for Genomics in Business and Society. Um, it's an amazingly generous gift and it will allow us to take our public engagement work uh, and our business development work uh, to the next level. So we have been working hard in those areas, but this gift um, gives us the ability to do so much more. Tell us about some of the outreach that you do, like these seminars and other more general public outreach. So um, we have our G4 program. Um, that's one of our leading programs for, for training. Uh, we have another program called the Art of Science, which is a local partnership um, between uh, Doug Nelson, uh, who is the, the president of Body Works Associated, and Body Work Associates, excuse me, and the IGB. And this is a way to celebrate science through art. So we develop images that come through our core facilities, our microscopes. Um, we have some really talented artists who uh, embellish these images. 
we have some talented writers who write simple captions to explain um, the science underlying the image. And then each year we have a uh, event, uh, a local event. This year was just a couple months ago at the Springer Center, just a few blocks away from here, um, co-sponsored by Body Works Associates and the IGB. We invite the public to view these images, to learn about our science, and to um, enjoy um, the, uh, the fruits of the science. We then take those uh, um, elsewhere. Um, they're on display at local hotels, at airports. Uh, we had uh, about 20 images on display at Chicago O'Hare Airport. Um, they're located in corporate offices, places uh, where we can um, help spread the word about um, the amazing science that's going on at the University of Illinois campus and, um, and, and use that to start conversations about, about the value of science. So that's another really important uh, uh, activity. Uh, we also do something, um, just to name a third program, the World of Genomics, which is a large uh, set of exhibits uh, we do every year, we do something with the Orpheum, a partnership with the Orpheum called Genome Day, where we have uh, exhibits. We've had five to six hundred people come through, uh, families, children, grandparents, um, to learn about genomics and how it's impacting uh, all areas of science and society. And then, um, again, we take this one on the road and we renamed it to the world of genomics and we have partnered with some leading institutions uh, outside of Champaign-Urbana such as the Field Museum of Chicago where we had over 10,000 people visiting our exhibits. That uh, was just this spring, wasn't it? Yeah, that was just last spring. Yeah. Oh, last and, spring, yeah. sorry. And then um, more recently in last October we were at the St. Louis Science Center uh, where about 6,000 people um, came through to see our exhibits. And then just a couple of months ago, we were at, uh, in Washington, D.C., at the National Academy of Sciences. Uh, they, they themselves have developed a new portfolio in public engagement and outreach. And uh, for their first event, they asked us to partner with them. And so we put on a joint event where we had our world of genomics in the science, uh, in the building of the National Academy of Sciences. And really what you're seeing is that there's such uh, an interest in understanding science on the part of the public and such a need uh, to be able to explain it well. The issues are getting more complex and they are touching all areas of life. Personal reproductive choices, um, nutrition, other, other aspects of life, the legal system, you name it, science is now involved and is only going to be getting more so. So we are a leading land-grant university, so pardon the pun, it's in our DNA. That's what we do. <laughs> um, that's part of what we do, and the IGB is really pleased to be able to, uh, to, to play such an active role in the university's outreach and, and, and engagement. And now with this Kleinman Center, um, we'll be able to do even more. That's a good way to sum all that up. I can't let you go without asking about colony collapse disorder and what the latest theory is on and how that's going. Have you made progress? <laughs> yeah, so we are at, a, I think, a, um, an encouraging point in what has been uh, over a decade of real concern and dramatic losses in bee colonies. Um, the point that we're at right now is we now finally understand, or not understand, we know the causes, and we have an understanding as follows. There are four culprits, four main mm -hmm. culprits. They're known as the four Ps, pesticides, parasites, pathogens, 
and poor nutrition. So that's the first insight. The second insight is that they interact in unpredictable ways. So now we have the agenda. The agenda is to understand how do those four factors weaken bees and interact with each other to really create the problem. So I'll give you an example. Fungicides, an important part of agriculture, designed to kill fungi, not insects. Insects are not fungi. When bees are healthy and they're exposed to fungicides, no problem. If bees are stressed with a virus or they're nutritionally stressed and they're exposed to the fungicide, now there's a problem. Mm -hmm. So we need to understand those interactions, understand them at the molecular level. That's, of course, where the honeybee genome comes into play. It provides such a useful roadmap uh, and a set of resources to be able to understand those, uh, those interactions. So that work helped help scientists try to figure all this out? Yeah, definitely. Well, hopefully, since the life of the planet depends on the bees, um, <laughs> I wish you luck in that. So, Thank you. All right. Well, thanks so much for being here today. It's always interesting. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you very much for having me. It was a pleasure.